This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Support for today's show comes from Homecoming, directed by the creator of Mr. Robot, Sam Esmail. Starring Julia Roberts, Homecoming follows Heidi Bergman, a caseworker who helps soldiers transition back to civilian life at the Homecoming Transitional Support Center. Four years later, Heidi has started a new life, but questions about why she left the Homecoming facility force her to re-examine her motives and her past. Based on the critically acclaimed podcast by Eli Horowitz and Mika Bloomberg, don't miss the mind-bending psychological thriller, Homecoming. Available now only on Amazon Prime Video. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. In 2018, a handful of reporters for the Washington Post were awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Investigative Reporting for their groundbreaking stories on Russia's interference in the 2016 election and the resulting investigations of the Trump campaign and administration. The Post's national security reporter Greg Miller broke a number of those stories, including the revelation of General Michael Flynn's previously undisclosed contacts with senior Russian officials and Jared Kushner's attempts to set up a secret back channel with the Russian government. Now Greg Miller has written a comprehensive and meticulously sourced account of the entire Russia scandal in a new book titled The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. And today he comes on the podcast to share how he cornered the Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak at a science conference in Washington and caught General Michael Flynn in a blatant lie about his dealings with Russian officials. He describes the almost comical level of incompetence surrounding the 2016 DNC attacks, gives an inside look at the secretive Russian hacking agencies known as Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear, and the infamous troll farm behind Russia's social media influence campaign. He defends the Post's long-standing practice of using anonymous sources and explains just how they go about verifying those stories. Greg reveals efforts by the White House to derail the Washington Post's reporting on Trump's Russia connections and how he learned that President Trump discussed targeting him personally and even putting him in jail for refusing to reveal his sources. Plus, he discusses what happened to that Trump-Muller meeting that never was, and we speculate on just what it is that Vladimir Putin might have on Donald Trump. Coming up with Washington Post reporter Greg Miller in just a moment. Greg Miller is a national security reporter for the Washington Post who was part of the team that was awarded the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for their coverage of American surveillance programs revealed by Edward Snowden. And just four years later, he was among the Post reporters awarded the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting for their groundbreaking stories on Russia's interference in the 2016 election and the resulting investigations of the Trump campaign and administration. He delves even deeper into this growing controversy in his new book titled The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. Greg Miller, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, Greg, first off, just to establish your credentials on the subject of Trump, Russia, and the 2016 election, briefly remind us of some of the stories that you and your team at the Washington Post broke on this subject. Oh, sure. Um, so there were a series of them. Um, I think starting with the, uh, the story in December 2016 that the CIA had secretly concluded that Russia, in fact, was seeking to help elect Donald Trump. The Post was the first to report that uh, before the Obama administration had said anything about that. Um, and then fast forward a couple months when um, we broke the story that Trump's national security advisor had lied about his conversations after the election, before the inauguration, with Russia's ambassador to the United States. He had spoken with the Russian ambassador, told Russia, after Obama imposed sanctions to punish Russia for its interference, um, Mike Flynn had told the Russian ambassador, sit tight, we got you covered. 
couple weeks we'll be in a power and we're going to re-examine all this. And then he lied about that to the vice president. He lied about that to Sean Spicer, the White House spokesman at the time. He lied about it to the public. And we broke the story that he had not told the truth. And that led to his firing within days. And then it sort of continued from there. We had stories that forced Jeff Sessions to recuse himself from the Russia investigation because he too had not been truthful about his contacts with Russians. I had stories um, that um, I broke a story uh, a month or two later that when Trump invited the Russian foreign minister in the Oval Office, he had disclosed highly classified information to his Russian visitors. Um, and, uh, and then two big, big project stories that year about Russia's interference and Obama's struggle to deal with it in real time and Trump's refusal later to admit that it was real. Yeah, and also I think you say that you were involved in the story of Kushner's meeting with uh, Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, right? Yes. So the Post, yes, my colleagues and I had um, had stories about Jared Kushner's strange interactions with the Russian ambassador where he actually proposes using Russian communication systems <laughs> to set up a kind of secret back channel to the Kremlin. Um, and there were there were a, a lot of others too. Um, about, and I think you said Sergey Kislyak actually had to kind of calm him down. <laughs> he he was a little bit more cautious than Kushner was, right? Absolutely. Some of Trump's members of Trump's team were so eager uh, in these um, sort of offline communications that even the Russians were a little freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> and in another of these meetings with Kislyak, I guess he was joined by this guy, Sergei Gorkov, who is the head of the Russian Economic Development Bank. Now, I'm trying to imagine what possible official purpose his presence in a meeting with Jared Kushner would have been. And, you know, those there, the accounts, the explanations for that meeting from the Trump team and the White House was completely at odds with Russia's the, uh, explanation for what that meeting was about. Oh, yeah? They were not even close to being on the same page when we were asking about what the hell was this meeting about. Interesting. What, what, what were the two versions? Well, one version was that this was uh, just, you know, the Kushner version was this was just meeting with them out of courtesy, basically. Um, this had nothing to do with his sort of business, his desperate, dire situation with his real estate where he needed a big infusion of cash because he was underwater <laughs> on a building in New York. And of course, the, yeah. the Russian version was, oh, yes, it was absolutely about impossible investment opportunities with the Kushner <laughs> company. I, I mean, they, they, you couldn't make this up. Now, I mean, in fairness, it's not illegal for a private citizen to meet with a foreign diplomat. Congressmen do that all the time, and average citizens meet with diplomats from other countries. What is it that you find most suspicious about that interaction? You know, it's, you're right to a degree. Um, and and that's always been one of the puzzling things about this. Like, so they had all of these interactions, and maybe they were unwise. Maybe it wasn't smart to have these conversations and interactions. But the way we learned about them was always um, sort of suspicion raising, right? They, they mm -hmm. never came clean about any of it. They never just okay. sort of came forward and said, yes, we had this conversation. Uh, yes, we set up this meeting. That's what this, you know, it was always the Post or the New York Times finding out about it, forcing them to explain it. Mm -hmm. Then they would lie or mislead about it. And then they yeah. would have to come clean. Which is par for the course for this administration. I mean, that seems to be just how they operate. It does seem to be an impulse to that, that sort of truth is not their first uh, recourse. Yeah. <laughs> now, as part of your investigation into Michael Flynn's ties to Russia, you actually confronted Kislyak at, I think it was a science conference. What is he like? He's, you know, interesting. He's a super affable guy. I mean, he yeah. was highly effective as Russia's ambassador to the United States because he was always running around town, shaking hands and meeting people collecting phone numbers and contacts of Americans. Uh, and yeah, so we were, uh, you know, really trying to figure out, we knew that Flynn had had this conversation with Kislyak. We had a suspicion that he wasn't being forthcoming about it. It was very hard to, to get at the truth to that story. So almost out of desperation at one point, I saw that Kislyak, who's a trained physicist that by, by background. Oh, I didn't English, know that was speaking at a conference of physicists in Washington at a hotel. So I showed up, I made my way to the front row and watched him speak and was basically 
thinking that maybe I'll be able to chase him afterward through the exits and see if I can get him to say anything. And I was stunned that he finished speaking, came back down and completely by accident sat down right next to me. And so he was (laughs) trapped because there was another speaker coming. The spotlight was still on the stage. He can't get up and leave. So I kind of had him cornered for about 45 minutes. (laughs) And he verified the interactions between himself and Flynn. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, he told me that, yes, he'd known Flynn for several years, that they had extensive conversations and texts back and forth throughout the campaign and in the interim period before uh, Trump was sworn in. And it was, you know, he didn't, he wouldn't tell me that they had discussed sanctions. Mm-hmm. So that required further reporting. But I came away from that little encounter with, you know, him on the record acknowledging ext- extensive interaction with Kis- with uh, Michael Flynn. Yeah. Every time I see Kislyak, I think to myself, he is straight out of central casting for old school Soviet apparatchik or KGB goon. <laughs> yeah. Like he could be in like, you know, Rocky four or something. Yeah. In this, in the exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, eventually you ran with that story about his interactions with Michael Flynn. And another kind of lucky happenstance is that you had one of your colleagues from Washington Post was actually meeting with Flynn, I think, that day and was able to confront him about it before you ran the story. That's right. Karen DeYoung, who's a terrific uh, reporter, one of the most veteran sort of diplomat, uh, diplomatic correspondents for the Post, had a meeting scheduled with Flynn in his office, his new office in the West Wing of the White House. Just as we were finishing up that story, we asked her when you get in there, get through your interview, then when you're done, (laughs) wait till the end, ask him again, tell him the Post has has a bunch of sources telling us that he's not telling the truth uh, and we're giving him one more chance to come clean here. And she does. He again says, no, 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 that's not true. Uh, And, you know, the, the, the end to that story is so bizarre because the next day um, we held the story that night. We were a little worried that he, was still clinging to this denial. We wanted to make sure everything was okay before we published. It's a big deal when you're accusing the National Security Advisor of lying <laughs> to the public. Yeah. And, um, next day, I get a call from the White House. Um, we tell them we're going to go ahead with our story anyway. We know Flynn's denying it, but we're confident in our sources. And he says, well, hold on. We might want to modify the statement that Flynn gave you. We we now He now can't quite be clear. He can't recall whether he actually discussed sanctions. It might have come up. And it that was, you know, their whole story crumbled right then and there. Yeah. And along the way, it, it sounds like the White House engaged in all kinds of efforts to either derail these stories or perhaps even intimidate you and your colleagues at the Post. Is that right? What oh, kind of things did they resort to? Absolutely. Uh, there were... Um, there were strange and and disturbing moments. Um, there were later on in other stories that became increasingly combative and tense, our interactions with the White House on these stories. And um, there was a moment where I was sitting in my editor's office on a conference call with White House officials. They were screaming at us through the phone, telling us, you can't publish this stuff. We're going to track down your sources you need to get off this call right now, one of them said, and go call all your sources back to make sure you get this right because you're not right. And uh. in that moment, I just felt like he's trying to make us call sources so that they, so that we light up those sources' phones so that they can figure out who they are. Interesting. So you think that they were actually surveilling you? I don't know that we, we never saw any evidence that they were surveilling us, although we actually had meetings in the Post newsroom where we were warned uh, and where we were spoke with security experts about taking precautions, including like being careful about what we put out in our trash at night um, yeah. because there were possibly investigators digging wow. into us to kind of discredit us. Um, you know, the... So I never saw direct evidence that we were under surveillance, but there were, there was intense investigative interest in who our sources were, mm. and there still is, and it was dicey. Yeah, yeah, and indeed, James Comey actually references you in one of his memos describing a meeting that he had with Trump, where the president talked about actually putting you in jail for a story that he didn't like. Uh, how chilling was that for you? That was really um, unnerving when I saw that. You know, we those. The Justice Department ultimately released these memos that Comey had written about each of his encounters with the president. 
he took notes on these things because he was kind of troubled by, by the, the nature of their conversations. And in one of them, they are in the Oval Office and Trump is telling him, look, the problem is not Mike Flynn. It's the leaks. You got to get to the bottom of these leaks. And Comey's going along with it. Comey's saying, yeah, I know this is a big issue. Yeah, that was and, surprising. And then um, Trump says, you know, we need to go back to putting reporters in jail. We used to do that. We should get back to that. Mm. And then he's talking specifically about certain stories. And as I read that memo, he was talking about stories that I had written about his conversations with foreign leaders because I had sources right. telling me about his calls with the leaders of Mexico and Australia. Right, I remember those articles. I even ended up with transcripts of those calls and we published them and he was livid. And, you know, Comey says that in a couple points in that meeting, it would be great to nail somebody to the wall as an, as an example, it would be great to put some heads on pikes. And, wow. um, you know, that was really, that really was frightening. Yeah. Were you upset at Comey for playing along with the president and not standing up for the free press? Or do you sort of understand the position he was in in that case? No, he, you know, for all of his, um, for all of the way he sort of now depicts himself as somebody who was valiantly standing up to Trump, he also, when you read these memos, and if you read my book, The Apprentice, I think, uh, where I talked to lots of people who worked with Comey, he was trying to find a way to hang on to his job. Mm -hmm. He was trying to find a way to get along with Trump. They didn't agree on many things, but he didn't want to be pushed out of that job. Yeah. He was trying to find common ground. And unfortunately, putting reporters in jail seems like one of those areas where he felt there might be some common ground. Wow. Now, many of these stories surrounding Trump and his team's interaction with Russians wouldn't have come to light were it not for the willingness of people within the administration to talk to the Washington Post and other outlets on background. The alt-right and conservative media seem to be engaging in a campaign to discredit journalists and articles they don't like by getting the public to somehow conflate anonymous sources with either unverified sources or perhaps even made-up sources. Can you clarify what an anonymous source is and how the Post actually vets these anonymous sources? Sure. I uh, think that it's confusing for a lot of people. I'm yeah. glad you asked this question. Um, anonymous sources, it might not be the best term for them because they're not anonymous to us as journalists. I mean, we know exactly who they are. We don't use their names in stories because there would be repercussions for them if they were, if their identities were revealed. But we absolutely know who they are. And we never rely on sources that are anonymous to us. Uh, and in fact, what often happens even when we... Uh, somebody comes to us, which is also something I've written about in the book, cases where there were officials in government who were deeply disturbed by what they were seeing, come to reporters at the Post, including myself, eager to uh, ex you know, describe what they've witnessed. Um, you end up still uh, having to do a lot of vetting of those people. Who are they? Where are they coming from? Do they have ac the access to the information they claim to have? You go back to many other sources that you've known for many years and you sort of ask them without revealing who source A is, listen, I'm getting this sort of information. Does this sound plausible to you? Does this sound okay? There's a, you know, I would just say that we couldn't write these stories and we wouldn't know of half as much as we do now about the Trump administration's entanglements with Russia if we couldn't rely on anonymous sources. Mm -hmm. They're critical to our functioning as a news organization. Uh, and, we, uh, and we prize above all else accuracy and facts. So... Yeah. So, so these aren't just anonymous people calling you up, <laughs> no, not in giving fact, their names. In fact, I'll or, give you a quick. The, in a quick, one case, they were, I guess. So. Well, uh, but uh, you followed. I was just going to say yeah. that there's, uh, there's an example of this in the book because one of my colleagues, Ellen Nakashima, terrific reporter, uh, at one point went down to the mailroom at the Post, and in her mailbox is an anonymous letter during the during the tail end of the election, after the election. It's an anonymous letter from somebody purporting to be an insider at the Trump transition team up in Trump Tower, deeply troubled by what he or she is seeing happening there in terms of interactions with Russia. It ends up being kind of a roadmap for us. It helps point us to stories, including stories about Flynn. But we never relied on anything in that document because we never figured out who had written it. Even to this day, we don't know. Uh, and so that's not a source to us. We can't use 
those unverified anonymous tips that come in, mm-hmm. except to use them as a sort of reporting guide for where we can focus our attention. Yeah, I mean, your, your Washington Post's biggest story, Watergate, probably wouldn't have happened if it weren't for an anonymous source. Deep Throat was an anonymous source. It's funny that, you know, this has been going on for decades. It's been a you know standard practice for journalists, and now suddenly it's being treated as if it's something new and suspicious. Right, right. And Trump goes after it constantly. They're fake sources, mm-hmm. even as he often... Uh, inadvertently confirms the contents of the stories, you know, in a tweet or something. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with The Washington Post's Greg Miller when we come back in just a minute. Almost every day, we hear something on the news about a cyber attack. Sometimes it's just a bunch of pranksters, But more often, it's a foreign country with vast cyber resources trying to hack our power grid, our banking system, or our military's information networks. The National Security Agency plays a big part in protecting our country from cyber attacks, and you can help. The NSA is hiring technical professionals to serve on the front lines of information security. If you work in computer science, networking, programming, or electrical engineering, you can help keep your country safe. Design new hardware systems and networks, write faster, smarter programs, protect America's critical infrastructure, or help uncover what our adversaries are planning to do next. Learn more about careers at the National Security Agency today. Visit intelligencecareers.gov NSA. That's intelligencecareers.gov NSA. In a world filled with fake news, flat earthers, and conspiracy theorists, what's a thinking person like you supposed to do? On the current episode of Star Talk All-Stars, neuroscientist and host Heather Berlin, Ph.D., and her comic co-host Ari Shafir investigate the importance of skepticism and the power of evidence-based thinking. To help us separate fact from fiction, Heather and Ari are joined in studio by guests Cara Santamaria and Dr. Stephen Novella, two of the hosts of the popular weekly science podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. If you're worried about the growing tide of anti-intellectualism and the devaluation of experts and facts which we're seeing all around us, tune in for a show filled with science and skepticism. Remember, trust no one, question authority, and listen to Star Talk All-Stars to get the rigorous scientific thinking you're desperate to hear. That's Star Talk All-Stars. Listen now wherever you get podcasts and make sure to subscribe. In the next 60 seconds, you're going to learn how the Flatiron School can change your life. The Flatiron School will teach you everything you need to get a job in code, data science, or design. But they'll also prepare you for the jobs that don't even exist yet. Because this is a school designed to educate you in the art of change. So if you're feeling stuck, bored, or unfulfilled, Flatiron will teach you how to change things. You'll learn by making things, breaking things, and discovering how the future is being built. The results speak for themselves. Go to flatironschool.com slash podcasts to read about graduates' new careers and salary ranges and explore upcoming courses as well as exciting new careers. You can start building your own new career in coding, data science, or digital design at one of Flatiron School's WeWork campuses or take courses online. Go to flatironschool.com slash podcast and read about graduates' new careers, salary ranges, upcoming courses, and explore these exciting new careers. Enrollment is now open. It's time to future-proof your career and change things, starting with you. flatironschool.com slash podcast. And now, back to the podcast. Now, one of these situations where Trump kind of went off the rails was that infamous tweet about Obama supposedly wiretapping him. Uh, you guys investigated that and you actually reveal how the White House apparently went into overtime trying to prove these wild assertions by the president. It, it sounds like they were trying to reverse engineer this to somehow come up with something, anything that would back up his conspiracy That's theory. That's a good way to put it, actually, right? I mean, he makes this crazy allegation. There's no evidence for it. Let's back it out. Let's sort of figure out how, what can we come, how can we come closest to making it seem like there's something plausible there? Yeah. Uh, And yeah, so, you know, we wrote about that at the time, but for the book, I really went back and interviewed additional sources and that ends up being one of the more kind of 
painstaking reconstructions in the book, mm-hmm. this blow-by-blow account of how they took classified material inside the White House, combed through it um, for stuff that they thought they could use against the Obama administration, then enlist Devin Nunes, this House Republican from California who's a close Trump ally in Congress, bring him over to the White House, bring him into this secret room and show him this stuff, and then have him kind of trot it out as if he's discovered it, you know, on his own through some amazing bit of detective work. Um, yeah, that so was it, bizarre. That was like the gang who couldn't shoot straight there. It happened so many times over and over. Yeah. There's so many cases like it. And what's funny to me is, I don't know if you've heard this from people in Washington, but even from conservatives I know who know him and interact with Devin Nunez in Congress, there seems to be a consensus that he's probably not the brightest bulb on the hill. <laughs> no, uh, no. In fact, I'm, I have this line in the book where the former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Rogers, who was a serious guy, was a right. was a former FBI sure. agent, yeah, highly regarded, was so frustrated with Nunes when he joins the committee. Because Nunes would use the travel money and go off to these places, but never come in and read any documents, never do any homework. Mm-hmm. Rogers actually cut off his travel budget, refused to let him <laughs> access any money until he went, came in and would sit down and look at documents and actually put his signature to them. <laughs> this whole Obama wiretapping hoax, that was probably the first attack in uh, this ongoing assault on the intelligence community by Trump. It got so bad that by the time he was inaugurated, he had to sort of make this half-hearted attempt to win them back with this speech at CIA headquarters, I think a day or two after the inauguration. How was that speech received at Langley? Uh, So not well, (laughs) I mean, is the short answer. You're right. It was his second day in office. His handlers, including Reince Priebus, put this on the schedule thinking this is a this will be a good time. The election's over. You're now the boss. You are now the president. Mm-hmm. You're now overseeing all of these agencies. They work for you now. Let's have some fence mending. Let's get this off to a good start. Let's put that on the president's calendar, and he goes out to the CIA in his second day in office, and everybody's sort of wondering, well, how is this going to go? It's just weeks earlier he had called CIA Nazis, you know, Accused yeah. them of leaking the Steele dossier about him. And um, the, the interesting thing that happened there was that they put, they chose a very special backdrop for his visit, for his remarks there. Right. The, the wall with the star. I don't know what they call that, but. It's a memorial wall yeah. at the agency. So there's, when you enter the CIA headquarters, you walk through the lobby on the right hand side is this big wall with a, with a bunch of hand carved stars. There's, roughly 140, 150 of them. Um, they all correspond to some an agency employee killed in the line of duty. And so this is a pretty sacred spot in that, in that building and on yeah, that campus, right? I think so. These are, these are friends, colleagues who are now gone. Uh, and so they put the stage there. It is an impressive and dramatic backdrop, and other presidents have used it, but no president has ever used it the way Trump did. Mm-hmm. He gets up, gives this self-aggrandizing speech. One, one person called it to me a, a narcissistic diatribe. I mean, he's up there, makes barely any reference to those stars or the sacrifices of the agency or its critical work in national security, and instead goes on a r- extended riff about the, how large the crowds were during his campaign, how many Time magazine <laughs> covers he's been on, how many the evil press refusing to acknowledge that he had over a million and a half people at his inauguration, which wasn't even close to being true. He just goes through all of this and people's jaws are sort of dropping. Like, you, you want to do this on your own time at, your, at the rallies you're staging, you know, in right. Ohio? Fine. But you, yeah. you can't do that here. And, you know, one of the... the the more precious details that I got for this book was from some sources who told me that after Trump left and after the agency came back to work that Monday, some employees began bringing flowers and laying flowers at the base of that memorial wall. They had felt he had defiled it so much that they that they felt they had to sort of mark that and, and mourn wow. it. Wow. And, and that is usually what they do in honor of a fallen hero, in, in honor of one of those stars yeah, you, on the wall. You, ordinarily, right? you would only see flowers there after a new car, a new star has been carved. Wow. 
Now, there's been constant speculation and debate over whether or not Trump will actually submit to an interview with the Mueller investigation. You say they actually scheduled a meeting for last January at Camp David. Uh, What was the purpose of that meeting? Was that supposed to be the interview? That was going to be the interview, and they were going to get it over with. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there were sort of really competing pressures and impulses on Trump's legal team at the time. They and the president wanted to get this over with. And they, they, you know, so part of it was if we just give him this interview, he'll have to wrap things up, you know. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense. If you have nothing to hide, get it over with. Get it over with. Put it out there. We'll be we'll get this behind us and move on. And then um, they did. They set a date January 27th at Camp David. They started even making some logistical preparations for it. Um, But then less than a week to go. John Dowd, Trump's lawyer, really panics. I think he just sort of, you know, people are on cable television shows at the time saying, oh, my God, you can never put Trump in front of any prosecutor because he's going to just perjure himself within 10 seconds. Uh, He's realizing that he can't prep Trump. Trump doesn't do homework. He won't listen. He won't sit down and practice lines. He won't stay to a script. That this this has the potential for disaster, and he pulls the plug on it at the Mm -hmm. very last minute. Was this after that supposed dry run that they did of a practice interview with him where he just made stuff up and pulled stuff out of his butt? Yeah. I mean, this is clearly after Dowd and others try to interact with him and test his ability Mm -hmm. to perform under these circumstances. And they come away just feeling like there's no way this will work. (laughs) Well, I want to ask you about the Russian interference itself in the election. You described the DNC's astonishingly glacial reaction to the news that they might have been hacked as sort of a comedy of errors. What took them so long to take that seriously? There's so many there's so many moments in this story and in the book where you I feel like it's like a horror movie where you're just sort of <laughs> watching the lead character stumble yeah. into a terrible situation where the killer's just right around the yeah. corner, you're screaming at the screen, wake up. I mean, this is just one of them where, you know, the DNC is um Stuff, weird stuff is happening in their network. The FBI calls to, and the FBI learns about this penetration. um, Pretty much knows from the outset that this is a Russian hacking organization targeting the DNC. They're a little constrained in what they can say, at least in that early stage, but they're calling over. Guys, we got a problem. They call the front desk at the DNC and get passed where else to the help line the de- the IT help desk like <laughs> they the, didn't the, even know who to reach out to no I, it's just amazing so it, it weeks and months go by with russians rummaging around inside the dnc network before the dnc security team and executive team wakes up i mean for a long time they think that these fbi calls are a hoax this is not oh, even really? re- not no even kidding. really the fbi on the line uh and and it, it's way, it's only way after it's way, way, way too late that they wake up to what's going on. Wow. Now, at the same time, there was also this massive Russian disinformation campaign on social media. I've heard alt writers say that the Russians only spent maybe a few thousand dollars on these Facebook campaigns. And so how much influence could they possibly have? Can you set the record straight on that? How much reach did the Russian Facebook campaign actually have? Yeah, so that's a really misleading number. It's true that it doesn't cost that much, and they were weirdly mm-hmm. paying in rubles for some of these ads, which <laughs> you wonder why Facebook didn't understand what was happening. But the the outlay for the ads themselves is not in any way indicative of the scale of this effort. Because meanwhile, Russia's plowing millions into employing hundreds of people at a troll farm in St. Petersburg, uh, sending operatives to the United States to travel back and forth, crisscross the country, taking the measure of political, the political mood in various places. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. And then just pumping massive volumes of disinformation at us through Facebook, Twitter, and other platforms. And the numbers are staggering now. I mean, we didn't, Facebook was very dismissive of this at the time, Mark Zuckerberg was. But now they have done some digging and they recently uh, acknowledged that more than 110 million Facebook users in the United States were subjected to Russian propaganda during the 2016 race. I mean, this is an election that comes down to fewer than 80,000 votes. Uh, so the math is overwhelming. 
And it's and it's just you have to understand how Facebook works. So you maybe they only spend a couple thousand dollars in buying those ads, but that's not what propels that content mm-hmm. across the country. It's it's, the it's, the, it's us. And, yeah, it's us, right? It's us. It's we Americans. Our susceptibility to this fake onslaught, passing it around, retweeting it, reposting it, liking it. I mean. As much as Russia's to 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 blame for this, we we have to take a hard look at ourselves. Wow! Now you investigated some of these Russian troll farms. Who exactly are these people? How are they trained? How does that operate? It's fascinating. So I have a I don't speak Russian, my but I have a terrific colleague in Moscow who helped me with this. His name is Anton Troyanovsky. He works for the Washington yeah. Post. Is he still alive? Oh yeah. Okay. He's he's a great guy. Uh, he actually scored interviews with some of the employees at this troll farm. The okay. work it's called the Internet yeah. Research Agency. And what they describe, these are Russians who even Russians describe this as an operation straight out of George Orwell. They would go there, they would take these jobs. This thing is called the Internet Research Agency. It looks and sounds kind of like a tech startup or something, but there's no clients. There's no source of any revenue that anybody can figure out. They ask people there to watch uh, Netflix shows like House of Cards so that they can get more fluent in the American <laughs> vernacular and then car- create a bunch of phony American kind of sounding identities. And um, That's incredible. And just spend their day after day after day pumping phony content out directly at us. So was this actually a Russian agency or was it a third party? It's an independent entity, an but group. it's super tied into Putin. Okay. So the so the organization is funded and run by this guy who just is sort of known as Putin's chef. Uh, he's called <laughs> okay, Putin, I've heard of him. He's, he's called yeah. Putin's chef because he meets Putin uh, after he opens a restaurant, a floating restaurant in St. Petersburg, and Putin likes it. Brings foreign dignitaries, including George Bush, to this restaurant. It forms this attachment to this entrepreneur, and then proceeds to make him a Russian oligarch by giving all kinds of massive uh, Russian contracts for him. But this is the price of that. This is how Russia works, right? This is the price of that kind of patronage. Yeah. You're now, now I need something from you. Set this thing up over in St. Petersburg and let's see what we can do against the Americans. Now, tell us a little about, I guess, these two agencies that are nicknamed Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. What are they and do they do they work in concert or do they have different tasks? They're, they are are hacking entities uh, that are within Russian intelligence agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is the GRU, which is the Russian military service, and the other is the FSB, which is its foreign intelligence gathering entity. You know, and it was kind of murky for a long time who they were, were they kind of outsourced by Russia? But oh my God, Robert Mueller has told us so much in his indictments about these entities down to, you know, specific names of individual Russian operatives, the keyboards almost, where they were sitting as they engaged in this hacking activity targeting the DNC and other American networks. So they are, they're in Moscow. They are, they are um, entities within the Russian intelligence apparatus controlled by the Kremlin, whose entire mission is to engage in hacking activities against, en- against Putin's enemies. Uh, do they perform different roles or are they both oh, well, kind of working on the same thing at the you know, same it's time? A, it's, that's a w- great question because, it, you know, I write about in the book how the DNC came under really two separate attacks. There was, a, there was an initial quieter, kind of more sophisticated attack by the FSB. It gets inside, it penetrates the network and is really doesn't make a lot of noise. It's tiptoeing around in there, pulling files down without attracting a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. A year later, the GRU shows up and it's like, you know, clanging pots and pans as it just sort of bangs around inside there, just riffling, grabbing stuff and r- yanking it out of out of um, storage areas and making big mass files so big that it's trying to download that it chokes off the system and it forces the whole network to shut down. I mean, they're just so clumsy. But they're, they're working kind of... A, in competition with one another huh. toward the same end. It's okay. a weird thing that happens yeah, in the Russian service. 
Yeah, because I've heard that there's the the group that is focused on just getting information on getting emails that can be damaging that they can release later through Guccifer or whoever, WikiLeaks. And then there's the arm that is either focused on actual sabotage or just undermining the entire system by being so loud and making so much noise when they're hacking uh, an institution like the DNC that it undermines our faith in the whole system. Yeah, yeah. I think that we're... What we're living through now is a weird, extraordinarily sort of aggressive new era in espionage with Russia at sort of at the forefront. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's broader than just this this hacking stuff that we're talking about. The attempted assassinations of the Skripals in Salisbury, England, yeah. this former Russian intelligence officer and his daughter found unconscious on a park bench, having been exposed to a Soviet-developed toxin. I mean, they're almost trolling us in terms of how um, horrible their tradecraft is, right? <laughs> I mean, they're almost like barely tra- barely even trying to disguise yeah. the Russian hand in these operations. It's almost like daring us to stop it. Yeah, And that's one of the craziest things because if you had a president who treated this as a real problem and not a hoax, you would, rea- you, you would see a very different reaction, mm-hmm. I think, from Russia. Uh, let me ask you this. What are the aspects of Russia's involvement in the election and Trump's relationship with Putin that you personally just find most baffling? I I find Trump sort of the, the psychology of Trump is so baffling to me uh, because it seems so illogical in some levels. I you know one of the, one one of the last chapters of the book is about his summit with Putin in Helsinki. I traveled to Helsinki to be in the room for that press conference. There's a moment there where Trump can really transform his presidency, right? He, the first yeah. question that comes at him in that press conference is, Mr. President, can you turn to Vladimir Putin right now? Tell him that the hack, you know that your intelligence services tell you that they, Russia did hack the election and that you're not going to allow that to happen again. If Trump could bring himself to do that, can you imagine how we would look at him differently as president, mm-hmm. right? We would, we would, he, he would sort of, the adulation that he so seem, desperately craves, he might actually earn it if, if he were yeah. able to do that, right? Exactly. He might actually get it, but he can't bring himself to do it because to do that requires acknowledging that the interference was real, which requires then for him to acknowledge that maybe he had some illegal help a big boost from Russia in the election, and that it wasn't just his magnificence that propelled him to victory. Mm-hmm. It's asking too much of him. Yeah, and what's weird is if, in fact, Putin had something on him or Trump had some motivation to be acquiescent to Vladimir Putin, you would usually think that that would be behind closed doors and he would at least, and, and Putin would probably understand, he was going to put on a public face of resisting Putin and standing up for America against Russia. But he doesn't. Even in public, he just seems to fold like a cheap suit. That's correct. So if Putin were controlling Trump, he would probably tell him, President Trump, you're going to have to act really tough toward yeah. us and then behind the scenes, cut us some deals, right? Yeah. Act like you are, are are coming after us in public. You can say all you want about me in press conferences and say what a terrible person I am. Yeah. Behind the scenes, can you lift some of these sanctions? And Trump might actually have the sort of political room to do some of that if yeah. he could talk tough, if he, if he could even sort of pretend to be tough toward Putin. So then does that undermine the Trump-Russia suspicions? I think that it undermines the the kind of um, idea that there is a complex, highly um, orchestrated, tightly orchestrated mm-hmm. conspiracy here. Okay. I just, I'm just not convinced that Trump could execute such a conspiracy. Yeah. But, but that's not to say that I think that the collusion claims are ridiculous because I think that they're very real. And I think that there was so much collusion out in the open and behind the scenes leading to things like we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, the effort by Mike Flynn to make good on some of these requests that Russia had Mm -hmm. get rid of these sanctions for us. I mean, there's a lot there. 
Yeah, and I, I don't want to confuse correlation with causation, but even I have to admit that just the mere timing of so many of these things seems way too perfect to possibly be coincidence. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I th- I also think that uh, that this is it's hard for us to process uh, because so much of it has happened out in the open, and then it's kind of an interesting mental exercise to think of these these interactions between Trump and Putin in um, a different way. Like his infamous line during the election, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you can find those emails, those missing Hillary Clinton emails. We now know from Robert Mueller, Russia, in fact, was listening. Within hours, they launched a spear phishing campaign, a hacking campaign against Clinton email servers, trying to get at that stuff. Didn't work. But, uh, I mean, Trump is in that moment saying so in front of the world. If we had learned, you know, months later that there was a Russian attempt to get at Hillary's missing emails and that it followed by hours a secret communication from Trump to the Kremlin, I mean, that would be one of the biggest scandals in American history. But since it's out in the open and staring at us in the face, it's hard to know what to make of it. Well, the million-dollar question is, what the heck does Putin have on Donald Trump? Uh, Some people suspect that it's a sex tape or it might be financial would you bet on it being something like that? Or maybe the compromise that he has on Donald Trump is simply the fact that Putin helped him win the election and maybe even that Trump might have known about it. Yeah, it's something it's something I really try to explore and tease out in the book. And I would put these sort of in a couple of areas of or that I would assign various levels of kind of credibility or mm-hmm. uh, emphasis. The idea... It's certainly possible, given how Trump conducts himself, that there's a tape of him with prostitutes in Moscow. I mean, I have to say, right? Why would he carry himself any differently in the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow than he does at a Lake Tahoe golf course with Stormy Daniels? Everything that's come out doesn't exactly discredit that idea. No, but (laughs) but would that really, something like that, would that really give Putin definitive leverage over Trump? Not not based on how he's been able to sort of shrug off all of these scandals all along. That's a good point. Um, I, I think that the idea that there are hidden financial entanglements is a much more compelling one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we could learn a lot about that from Robert Mueller. You, we've seen him tear Paul Manafort and Rick Gates limb from limb by going through their financials. Uh, and I mean, Trump's whole financial empire has so many weird entanglements with borderline criminal entities and fraud, you know, people convicted of fraud and, and really scary overseas person personas and stuff. It's, he also goes to such great lengths to hide all that from the public, refusing to put out his tax returns that everything about that tells you that there's something there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but I also think that there's also a fairly simple explanation again, staring us in right in the face, which is that Trump just personally, in his DNA, um, he admires people like Putin, um, mm-hmm. that he thinks that that's, that's weirdly to him an example of a strong leader. Um, he tries to emulate Putin. I, I actually think that if you gave Trump the choice right now, uh, enough power to make a decision on whether he could kind of replicate Putin's arrangement here for himself, you know, meaning he wouldn't have to worry about a Mueller investigation or an antagonistic Justice Department or an antagonistic press corps or, or a recalcitrant con- Republicans in Congress. He would take that in a second, yeah. you know? Yeah. Before we go, I want to ask you more about that, because as a member of the free press and just as an American, do you worry about what Donald Trump might do if he's backed into a corner on this? I worry about a lot of things. I mean, I worry that the signal that Trump sends over and over again about the just, you know, just the assault, the daily attack on the very principles of that that guide what I try to do and what so many professional journalists in this country try to do are our devotion to truth and fact and fairness, I mean, and, and he just sort of attacks that endlessly and devalues it and, and degrades it. His incitements, you know, we saw again an example just this week of him praising a, re- a Republican candidate who had beaten a reporter. Yeah. And, and Trump thinks that's a was great convicted thing. convicted of assault. We've seen him really um, dis- being very dismissive about one of my colleagues at The Post, this, this Saudi citizen who started oh, yeah. writing columns for us right. killed 
dismembered in a Saudi consulate in Turkey. Trump treats yeah. that like it's just not his problem, not our yeah. issue. Nothing, nothing should, no reason to disrupt our relationships with yeah. Saudis. All of those things are deeply disturbing to me. Well, again, Greg Miller's book is called The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. Greg, thanks so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Greg Miller for coming on the podcast. Order his new book, The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. You can regularly read Greg's reporting in the Washington Post and follow him on Twitter at at Greg P. Miller. The Flatiron School will teach you everything you need to get a job in code, data science, or design. But they'll also prepare you for the jobs that don't even exist yet. Go to flatironschool.com slash podcast and read about graduates' new careers, salary ranges, upcoming courses, and explore these exciting new careers. You can start building your own career in coding, data science, or digital design at one of Flatiron's local WeWork campuses, or you can take courses online. Go to flatironschool.com slash podcast, read the reviews, and sign up for a free intro course. Enrollment is open now. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.